0: You can open your Bibles, if you have them with you, to 2 Timothy. 2 Timothy, we're going to begin in chapter 1. Um, at the beginning of the year, I always like to take some time and reflect during the month of January. I say most of the time. I haven't always done this, but more often than not. Reflect a little bit on why do we do things the way we do. And last year we talked about making disciples and what that means and and, and how we do that. Um, I want to take some time today and, 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 and just stop and, and explain our mission statement because uh, it grew out of 2 Timothy, and as such, I'm, uh, basically I'm going to exposit 2 Timothy this morning, the whole, the whole letter at once, but at least the main theme going through that letter because there's no way we could cover it all. Um, but so the title of the message is Building a Faithful Gospel Witness. Our, our mission statement is Building a Faithful Gospel Witness for this generation and the next. And it really is derived right from this letter. Um, but before we get into the text and, and then the message, uh, let's take a moment and go to the Lord in prayer. Heavenly Father, as we come to your word, Lord, we come ready to hear. Speak your word to us, Lord, that we might hear and respond, that we might hear and obey. Lord, help us to understand the task that you have given a church in its community, its central task, that we might then walk it out and live it out in that community. In Jesus' name, amen. Uh, I'm going to begin by reading, starting in 2 Timothy chapter 1 and verse 6. 2 Timothy chapter 1 and verse 6. Uh, You can join me. For this reason I remind you to fan into flame the gift of God which is in you through the laying on of my hands. For the spirit God gave us does not make us timid or cowardly. It doesn't give us cowardice. It doesn't make us cowardly. But gives us power, love, and self-discipline. So do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord or of me, his prisoner. Rather, join with me in suffering for the gospel by the power of God. He has saved us and called us to a holy life, not because of anything we have done, but because of his own purpose and grace, This grace was given us in Christ Jesus before the beginning of time. But it has now been revealed through the appearing of our Savior, Christ Jesus, who has destroyed death and has brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. And of this gospel, I was appointed a herald and an apostle and a teacher. That is why I am suffering as I am. Yet, this is no cause for shame because I know whom I have believed and I and am convinced that he is able to guard what I have entrusted to him until that day. What you heard from me, keep as the pattern of sound teaching with faith and love in Christ Jesus. Guard the good deposit that was entrusted to you. Guard it with the help of the Holy Spirit who lives in us. You then, my son, Paul to Timothy, be strong. I'm I'm sorry, I'm I'm jumping forward to chapter 2, verse 1. should have noted that before I started in there. You then, my son, be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus and the things you have heard me say in the presence of many witnesses and trust to reliable people who will also be qualified to teach others. Amen. Last month... Mark Espinosa, an armored car driver, I don't know why they call them armored cars, they're all trucks, but an armored car driver in Louisville disappeared with $850,000. I mean, just the truck disappeared, he disappeared, it's gone. From my knowledge, I haven't found him yet. A week later, <clears throat> in Rutherford, New Jersey, just over half a million fell out of the back door of an armored car because the rear door had a mechanical issue. I guess you want to maintain those pretty well. <laughs> Just thinking might be a good idea. Cash went flying everywhere, and almost three hundred thousand remains missing. In January of two thousand and one, so we're going back a little ways. Dennis Sullivan was arrested for the robbery of what he thought was an armored car in Massachusetts. Holding a sawed-off shotgun, he ran up to the driver and said, give it up. Then he grabs a bag and he runs. A short time later, he realized it was a bag of mop heads. He had robbed a laundry truck uh, (laughs) delivering towels and mops. Yeah, Armored cars, or trucks as it were, were intended to guard and deliver. They're intended to guard and deliver. In order to deliver what was entrusted to them, first, these drivers have to protect it. If a truck shows up to make a delivery, but the entrusted deposit flew out the back door on the way, the the delivery is pointless. If the driver runs off with it, it can't get delivered. Paul's instruction to Timothy and This letter that we call 2 Timothy focuses on protecting and delivering the gospel message which has been entrusted to us. Protecting and delivering the gospel message which has been entrusted to us. May it never be said of us as a church that we delivered only half of what was entrusted to us. That's not good enough. Do you think that that armored car service did their job when they showed up 300,000 short? Well, look, we gave you 500,000. What are you so worried about the other 300,000 for? We don't want to deliver half. We want to deliver all that has been entrusted to us. May it never be said that we arrive with an empty truck. May it never be that we arrive with a bag full of mopeds. Our mission statement, building a faithful gospel witness for this generation and the next, is a bit like this. To oversimplify, we could say the first half is about protecting what has been entrusted to us, guarding what has been entrusted to us, and the second half is about delivering it. Why is the gospel so valuable that we should guard it and protect it, and so central to the ministry of the church? How do we protect and deliver it? What practices do we have that are intended to ensure that we, make, uh, that we fulfill this obligation faithfully? How do we form our church life around the vital mission to build a faithful gospel witness so that we might protect and deliver the gospel? How do we do that? Well, we'll explore the answers to these questions today from 2 Timothy under three headings. The first, guard the message. Second, deliver the message. Those two might have been obvious in my introduction. Guard the message, deliver the message. And then thirdly, persist in proclaiming the message. And let's begin under that first heading, guard the message. And let's uh, revisit chapter 1, uh, verses 11 through 14, if you would. And of this gospel I was appointed a herald and an apostle and a teacher. That is why I am suffering as I am. Yet this is no cause for shame because I know whom I have believed and am convinced that he is able to guard what I have entrusted to him until that day. What you heard from me, keep as the pattern of sound teaching with faith and love in Christ Jesus. Guard the good deposit that was entrusted to you. Guard it with the help of the Holy Spirit who lives in us. Paul was a herald. He was an apostle, a special emissary of a sovereign that was assigned to bring a message. He was a herald. He was an apostle. And he was a teacher of a message. that message is called the gospel. The word gospel itself contains a sense, so to speak, of it being spoken and heard. It is the content of a proclamation. And being the content of a proclamation, it therefore itself is that which is being proclaimed or preached or taught. So when we think of the gospel, it's, nothing, it's not something that's this static sort of thing that kind of sits there. It's, it's this truth that is being proclaimed, this news that is being heralded and spoken about. More on that in a moment. I mean, in short, we could say that the good news is the proclamation that God is restoring his just, peaceful kingdom on earth as it is in heaven, and is doing so through a king who was crucified by Rome. But God raised him from the dead. So, in their honor and shame culture, is a, a, a culture built on honor and shame, and we're not entirely familiar with that, though, obviously, with all the bullying that goes on in uh, social media and so forth, we're becoming more and more familiar with that kind of thing. But in that culture, crucifixion was the greatest of all shames. I mean, it exceeded, for instance, being unfriended by somebody on Facebook. It was the greatest of all shames. Paul proclaims a crucified king. So, so that itself is shameful. ...in their culture, and then he is in chains, or that's his euphemism for being in prison, as it were, and house arrest. He's confined, which again is shameful in that culture. I mean, it is in ours. I mean, if you just think about it, if you're watching the news and they talk about somebody that has been charged with a certain thing, and they show a picture of that person now being arrested, handcuffed in the back of the police car, what do you immediately think? Despite what our laws say about innocent until proven guilty, they are now guilty until somebody proves them innocent. That's just how we look at it. Sinful nature maybe is at the fault of that. I don't know, but that's how we view. You see them in the orange jumpsuit. At least that's what they wear here in Florida. You immediately is isn't crook. It isn't until proven guilty. Nothing. That orange jumpsuit says it all. So here's Paul preaching a crucified Messiah, a crucified king, shame, defeated by the empire. And he's in jail, defeated by the empire. And he says to Timothy, don't be ashamed of the Lord, of the gospel, or of me as prisoner. And Timothy, if, if he were culturally awash, would have said, right. Yeah, right, yeah, sure. But that's not who Timothy was, so this, this drew him in. Paul is calling Timothy not to be ashamed, but to join him in suffering for the gospel. What would be shameful in that culture? But then, in verses 11 through 14, Paul reminds Timothy of who Paul is. He's a herald. He's a special emissary. One sent with a message to deliver it faithfully. And then he explains that this is the source of his suffering. But that this is no reason to be ashamed. Why not? Why, why is that not a reason to be ashamed? Because Paul has entrusted something to God. His very life. His honor. Everything about his life. He has entrusted to God. And on that day when accounts are reconciled, he knows he'll get honor, the honor that is due him. And he'll live for that day. And he's willing to suffer the cultural shame, and think of it as nothing because of what will happen on that day. But then in verses 13 and 14, Paul, as it were, turns the tables on Timothy. Yeah, Timothy, I've entrusted my very life and all my honor to God. But now you need to know something, Timothy. God has entrusted something to you. Now, God is able to keep it until that day. The question is, are you able to keep it until that day? What has been entrusted to Timothy? The message. The message of the gospel. Guard the good deposit that was entrusted to you. In verse 14, it says. Verse 13. That's, that's merely a restating of what is said in verse 13. Keep as the pattern of sound teaching with uh, with faith and love in Christ Jesus. So so what you heard from me, keep. This this message that Paul as an apostle was delivering, keep it. Keep it, guard it. Protect it for the sake of delivering it. Now, Timothy was certainly qualified. You may remember from our series in Philippians just a, a month or so ago that Paul says of Timothy in chapter 2, verse 20, I have no one else like him who will show genuine concern for your welfare. Timothy lived the gospel. He embraced it fully. The the gospel is being entrusted to Timothy because he has proven himself faithful in both life and doctrine. Life and doctrine. Timothy has been given a deposit. Now... Something I think important to remind us of and necessary and helpful to understand this letter fully. Really necessary and helpful to understand the whole Bible. And it may be a little shocking for me to say it or surprising for me to say it because I know it's not necessarily culturally in our evangelical world how we hear things. But let me, let me say something to you. The Bible was written for you, but it was not written to you. I know, I know we like to tell people that the Bible's like God's personal love letter to you. Well, no, it's not actually. And if you read it that way, you're going to completely misunderstand it. It wasn't written to you. It was written for you. And in that it was written for you, we have to read it based on who it was written to and understand it and then apply it to our lives. You see the difference there? A very important distinction that we can't miss. Doesn't make it less personal, but it does help what its personal messages come to life for us a little better. Now, I do not mean when I say that, however, that God will not speak to you through it. He will speak to you personally through it. And especially when you recognize that it wasn't originally written to you but for you, and then you understand it accordingly. He'll have much more freedom to speak to you personally through it. All right. When we read 2 Timothy, which is called a pastoral epistle, you've got 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy, and Titus, they're called the pastoral epistles, which is because they were, they were written to pastors, not congregations like Ephesians or Galatians. Written to pastors. We have to realize that everything in this letter applies, doesn't apply directly to the congregation or each person in it. Not directly. Indirectly, it has implications for us. It has more direct application to pastors with implications for members. So, I recognize it wasn't written to me, it was written to Timothy. But as a pastor of a congregation, I stand in closer line with what, who Timothy was in that role than if I weren't a pastor. So there's that relationship, that connection that we need to understand. So Paul is laying out the priorities for Timothy and his work. If we want to understand, them, we have to understand it in that light. I think he's laying out the priorities for all pastors, adapted to their particular circumstances. Timothy pictures for us a pastor's responsibility, and by implication then it gives responsibilities to churches. Timothy received this deposit when he heard Paul proclaiming and teaching the gospel and observed his life, according to verse 13. Now he must keep it. and Literally, that word keep is hold on to it. Hold it. Keep it. And live it with faithfulness and love in Christ. And then he kind of restates it in verse 14. Hold on to it. In verse 13, now becomes guard the good deposit. In verse 14, the church today, influenced as it is by marketing techniques mixed with a genuine desire to see the lost saved, the tendency in the church world today is to focus on the destination or the delivery. You know, back to our original analogy, it's all about getting to the destination. But we're often guilty of leaving the back door of the truck wide open or driving a truck full of mops and towels to the lost. That doesn't do a lot of good. We delivered, all right, but what we delivered is empty. We can clean them up, but we can't see them transformed. Timothy, the pastor, will not be able to to, to do this, will not be able to guard it, Without the help of the Holy Spirit. But he has that. We know that. Through the laying on of Paul's hands. He knows that the Spirit is in him. The gift of God is in him. And again, let's go back. What is this deposit? It's the gospel. Yes. But that requires definition. There are two things about the gospel that we need to keep before us. First. By gospel, I do not mean strictly the doctrine of justification. And that's what it's largely been reduced to in the last hundred years in evangelical world is when we talk of the gospel, we're talking about basically I'm a sinner, Jesus was perfect, he died for me and paid the price for my sin, and I get saved because of that free gift. And that's true, and that's a part of the gospel. That's important and that's vital. But if we start saying that is the gospel, we have left out a vast sum of what is the gospel. Huge portion of what is the gospel. So that's not bad. It's incomplete. And we need to keep that in mind. So by gospel, I do not mean strictly the doctrine of justification. By gospel, I do I do not mean strictly a body of teaching... A body of teaching. In other words, the gospel, it's this doctrine. You know, we've got these, uh, we, we might say it as the Apostles' Creed. I believe in God the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth, and Jesus Christ, His only Son, our Lord, and, and on and on. Well, that's, that's a good body of teaching, and that is certainly an element of the gospel. But the gospel is not merely a, doctrine, a body of teaching. The, the gospel is a way of life also. One of the things we say around here a lot is our values is, is love the gospel, live the gospel, advance the gospel. I've, there's actually been books written on the fact. People saying you can't do that. They, get, they say, that's misteaching. You can't live the gospel. My answer is, you don't understand what it is. I would argue you have to live it or you don't even know what it is. So... By the gospel, I don't strictly mean the doctrine of justification. And under that, let me a couple of other ways to think that. The gospel is not equal to the storyline of the Bible, though they are clearly related. We can be very good at laying out the storyline of the Bible, and there's a variety of ways to do it. We start with creation. We, we talk about the fall. We talk about redemption and final glorification. There, there are a number of ways one might talk through that, and those are necessary, but they aren't the same thing. The gospel is not a set of propositions which we have to accept. Again, an element of it. If if I were going to succinctly state the gospel, the message that Paul proclaimed, I might say it this way, though again it will be incomplete, but the gospel is the proclamation of God's reign here and now. Or we might say it this way, the gospel is the proclamation of God's future reign present today in Jesus Christ who is present in his church. That reign is one of justice, peace, love, faithfulness, of humanity flourishing in the image of God and being restored to the image of God. Now, that that gets closer at least to what the, the bullseye is in the, in the gospel. Now, here's the reality because the gospel is so big, we will never tire of expounding this gospel and it will never become so familiar that we cease having to engage it deeply. Whether Paul is saying that Timothy... Heard the gospel and observed the faithfulness and love of Paul's life in verse thirteen, or whether Timothy is to hold on to what he heard Paul, from Paul with faithfulness and love. The point is really the same: guarding the gospel, and the, uh, guarding the gospel requires a life being transformed by its content. Guarding the gospel requires a life being transformed by its content. Why? Because a gospel which doesn't transform the carrier is not understood by the carrier and therefore cannot arrive safely at the destination. A gospel that is not understood by the carrier... I'm sorry, a gospel that doesn't transform the carrier is not understood by the carrier and therefore cannot arrive safely at the destination. It's like the the driver last month in Louisville who ran off with the truck and the money. The, The driver has to guard and protect what is there, but he also has to have a lifestyle that indicates he understands it, which, which means that when you're hiring for armored car drivers, you shouldn't hire people that have a history of armed robbery. There's something about understanding the role that should go together with a lifestyle that should match the task. And if we are given the gospel but don't deliver it intact on the other end, we are called thieves. We must guard the message in order to deliver the message. Look with me at chapter 2, verses 1 and 2 again. We must guard the message in order to deliver the message. You then, my son, be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus and the things you have heard me say in the presence of many witnesses and trust to reliable people who will also be qualified to teach others. After guarding the message, Timothy must focus on delivering the message, depositing it with others. But note the order. First, verses 11 through 14, Timothy heard the message in the presence of many who could observe um, uh, both what he heard and that he incorporated it into his life. That came first. Next, Timothy must make a deposit into the lives of faithful ones who will be, future tense, will be qualified to teach others. Deposit in faithful ones who will be qualified to teach others. They aren't now, maybe, but they will be. you got to deposit that into their hearts and lives. This is the... Building the faithful gospel witness, this is the for this generation and the next element of it. How do we ensure that the next generation will will, will carry on? Well, we have to make a deposit into them. We might think, going back to um, our, our analogy of the Uh, armored cars and the drivers, that that a driver of an armored car should raise up new drivers. So this might be how we tend to think, that that, that a driver of an armored car should raise up new drivers by teaching them driving skills, talking about the importance of arriving at the destination and how to use the navigation system that is on board and and so forth. Rather, if we follow the construct of verses 1 and 2 here, the way you raise up future drivers in that analogy is to deliver the treasure to them over and over and over and over until they too have the treasure. And when they have the treasure, they have something to deliver. And the treasure itself, the message, will conform them and transform them into the kinds of people that will faithfully deliver that message. You see the difference in methodology? See, even though that these people will one day be able to teach others, nowhere here anyway, I'm not saying this isn't a role that Timothy would have had or taken on or any pastor should, but nowhere here is he told to teach them how to teach. That wasn't his job. His job was to keep delivering the deposit faithfully to them so that they had it and see if they were living it out. Then you would know that they're faithful ones that are able to, And we'll be able to teach others also. His job is to teach them the message and to live the message and observe that they are incorporating the message into their lives. Now, most churches worth their salt, and this one included, I suppose, um, we we have, and and most have, on their lead preaching pastor's job description. So my job description, for instance. It it has two categories. Sunday morning preaching. That's definitely on my job description. Raising up future leaders. Leadership development, it might be called. Yep, and that's on my job description. And that's good as far as it goes, but it may create a false dichotomy. Every Sunday morning, I am doing both of these. Right now, as I am preaching, I am raising up future leaders. You might say, how's that? (laughs) Because I'm focused on the deposit and I'm working on depositing it into the lives of everyone in the room. The faithful ones who are capable to teach others will, like oil and water, be recognized as they rise to the surface. Ah, there's a faithful one, there's a faithful one, there's a faithful one. And you'll be able to see it. But every Sunday morning, I would argue, I'm doing the most important aspect of raising up future leaders. The central aspect, which is depositing the deposit, continuing to entrust that deposit into the lives of god's people faithfully delivering it is certainly my goal whether i always accomplish that's another discussion faithfully delivering it that it might be understood and 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 retained you could maybe use uh mixing up some monetary analogies the idea of how do you teach uh, bank tellers how to recognize counterfeit bills well of course now they just run a marker across it that's how but Back in the day, the way they taught them to recognize counterfeit bills was to have them study the real thing over and over and over and over and over until anything else was obvious. That's how we teach and uh, train leaders for the future. It's a key aspect of it. So raising up leaders does not first involve giving them opportunities in practice. That, that model will be like an armored car which is uh, empty or, or, or full of laundry you know, being delivered. Raising up leaders must first focus on the content of the message and incorporating it into life. Sunday morning, community group. Sunday morning, community group. Get the message, how do we incorporate it into life? And that's the, the why our model is built the way it is. We, uh, we see the source of the power in 2 Timothy three sixteen and 17, where Paul writes, All Scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and... Here's leadership development, training in righteousness, so that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. The Scriptures. And, of course, right before that, he was talking about how Timothy learned the Scripture. It's the Scripture that carries the life, that brings salvation, that transforms us, that equips us. Imparting Scripture is the primary means of equipping the servant of God for every good work. then it involves recognizing those who are faithful. This this imparting to those who will be able to teach others also, it involves recognizing those who are faithful and who love the message and who will do the same. Not those. You have to to also recognize those that aren't that, because sometimes they're the ones who are infatuated with ministry, infatuated with driving trucks full of riches, but rather, we, we, we want to find those whose lives are bent on delivering and living the message at all costs. Delivering and living the message at all costs. Their task will become what Timothy's task is. Be diligent to present yourself approved to God. A worker who doesn't need to be ashamed, correctly teaching the word of truth. There's a responsibility, you see, that comes with teaching and preaching. A responsibility because that worker may need to be ashamed if he doesn't take that responsibility seriously, but rather the, to correctly teach the word of truth. James puts it this way in chapter 3, verse 1, not many should become teachers because those who teach will be judged more strictly. Now, important side note that we have to say, I think we have to say, I'm going to say it, so it's my sermon. Um, When, when protecting the gospel, guarding the gospel. There, there's a difference between Timothy and every other pastor since. And the further away we get, maybe you know, more so. Timothy, we know from Paul, had the deposit in full. He got it. We would be naive, to put it nicely, if we thought that we had the full deposit. You see, we start with a truck that's missing 300000 And so along the way, we need to be looking for where that money has fallen out and get it back in the truck. Which means that we don't protect our opinion of the gospel, we protect the gospel. And we need to be open to reasonable discussions with brothers and sisters in Christ that might help us see that we need to be reformed in our thinking about what the gospel is. So I'm not talking about just being dogmatic and bullheaded about what we think is true. That's a different thing. And many a preacher does that, and I'm sure I've done it sometime in my life, get up and pound the pulpit. And but that's not what we're talking about here. To be faithful means we've got to pay a lot of attention to the content, and we should have a humility in approaching that content that says, hey, I need to learn. And the history of the church should tell us, I mean, for instance, we can look at other generations in the history of the church, and most of us can readily recognize things they had wrong, but that should make us a little suspicious about ourselves. You know, if if all the other generations had some things wrong, what do you think? We got a few things wrong, right? And that's why, I'll, I'll make a case here, why it's vital that we keep going back to the text and let the text Deliver the message. Because this this has not been corrupted. But our thinking about what it means has been. And if we keep going to it and just looking for things to prove the point we're making that Sunday, we're never going to adjust and recover that missing $300,000. But the one thing I've found in 20 years of expository preaching. I didn't do my first 10 years in another church. I wasn't expository preaching. But in the last 20 years of expository preaching, one thing I've discovered is a whole lot of my doctrine has been adjusted. I mean, I I remember back the first time I taught through the book of Acts, and I'm studying chapter 1, and I'm studying what in the world is the point of this whole thing of throwing lots to pick another apostle who we never hear of again. And all of that, and all of a sudden... a a point about which I had been very dogmatic with uh, an individual debating about this thing, two weeks earlier, I'm now totally undone because the text is convincing me that I was wrong. And I had to change my perspective. So so you should want your pastor to always be going back to the text and letting the text speak because it will serve you in the long run. So we must guard the gospel, but recognize that we also need to recover the gospel in some sense. Always reforming is how the reformers would have put it. Always reforming. And, and sometimes people that call themselves reformed forget that part of reformed. <laughs> we don't want to be that group. We want, always reforming. Pastors must guard the message and deliver the message. And they must also persist in proclaiming the message. I want to read to you chapter 4 of 2 Timothy, the first four verses, and I'm going to read this from the Christian Standard Bible. I just like the way it's worded here for preaching purposes. <laughs> I solemnly charge you before God and Christ Jesus, who is going to judge the living and the dead, and because of his appearing and his kingdom. So he's charging them, pro- Him, proclaim the message. Persist in it, whether convenient or not. That's the part. I love that. Persist in it, whether convenient or not. That, that captures the essence of it. Rebuke, correct, and encourage with great patience and teaching. For the time will come when they will not tolerate sound doctrine, but according to their own desire will multiply teachers for themselves because they have an itch to hear something new. They will turn away from hearing the truth and will turn aside to myths. There's a reason why armored vehicles are armored. Now that might not be at first obvious to you, so let me say it again. There's a reason why armored vehicles are armored. Because stagecoaches didn't protect the money very well. <laughs> That's right. See, there's there's a lot of opposition to that deposit arriving at the destination intact, and they're called thieves. And the same is true for the gospel. There's a lot of opposition to it arriving intact. It's something like this: take your stand on preaching the word. That's what 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 this part that says persists in it, whether convenient or not, or in season and out of season. It it, it might best be expressed for me this way. Take your stand on this, preaching the word, when convenient and when not such a good time for it. Sometimes people love it. Sometimes people hate it. Preacher, you don't need to care. Preach the word. One pastor described the key to their church strategy, I think effectively. I like this says, we're going to preach the word. If we grow, it'll be the fruit of the word. If people stay away in droves, in other words, we're small, well, it'll be the fruit of the word. (laughs) That works for me. Even though Scripture warns us that we would be tempted to not preach the word, many pastors and churches don't take that responsibility seriously. They don't take the warning seriously. Despite the warnings, many people... Continue to not want that kind of instruction but prefer to have something that itches their ears or is focused on making them feel good about themselves. That's our current itch that we like in our culture. I want to be given a motivational speech when I go to church so I can go back to work feeling good about myself. Well, that's great. Go somewhere else. It's not that I want you to feel bad. I don't. I'd love for you to feel good. That's not my job. Is it Tony? What's the guy's name? Robbins. That's his job, not mine. (laughs) I'm not recommending him anyway. But (laughs) (laughs) myths are popular. They turn aside the myths. Myths are popular. People love them. Proclaim the message. That's the charge given to Timothy, and therefore I would make the case to all pastors. Proclaim the message, and in the context of this letter, includes both preaching and teaching. And there it, it's followed by saying that he, Timothy must proclaim the message with great patience and teaching. Now, why does it take great patience? Because it is resisted. That's one reason it requires patience. It's resisted. Many want something else. But it also requires patience and careful teaching because we are slow in applying it. Not just you, me. So I shouldn't be surprised when you are we've got to look over the long haul. It's not preach and expect change. It's preach and preach again and preach again and preach again and preach again. And, you know, by, by inches, we make progress. I know sometimes we want progress by miles, but I've just, in my experience, not found that very often that happens. So I'll take inches, sometimes centimeters, whatever, we take, whatever it takes. It requires patience and careful teaching because it requires transformation in the hearers. And that takes time. It's a renewal of the mind over and over again. Proclamation is not complete until the transformation is occurring in the lives of those who hear in our lives. Proclamation is not complete until transformation has occurred. And we will always be transforming, so my job will never be done. I have got more job security than anybody in the world. (laughs) Because it's not complete until transformation has occurred. Remember, from our series in Philippians, whatever you have learned, Paul writes to the Philippians, or received, or heard from me, or seen in me, put it into practice, and the God of peace will be with you. We have to put it into practice. Solid performance, or solid doing of the word, requires serious effort over a long period of time. Transformation does not occur overnight. This charge to proclaim the message has a long history among the people of God. It starts with Moses, but it actually has its foundation in Genesis one. But this this charge to proclaim the message it has a long history. Moses Deuteronomy one one it says that this book is what what the book of Deuteronomy is. It's you might remember that's a fairly lengthy book. It says. These are the words of Moses spoke to all Israel in the wilderness east of the Jordan. You might think that's why they died in the wilderness. Moses got up and just started preaching that whole book. No, but, but it's rooted in the fact that God creates, renews, orders, or recreates through his word. That's what Genesis 1 teaches us. And God said, and it was so. And God said, and it was so. Well, if God created the world, then guess what? When he renews the world, when he recreates, guess what he's going to use? His word. When Judah was brought back from captivity and the renewal of Jerusalem, the, the temple and the walls of the city, the people were, were, were gathered there. Now, Ezra, who was a, a teacher of the law, ex- experienced in teaching the law, well-versed in the law of Moses, it says in, 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 in Nehemiah 8 that he read and explained the law of the Lord from sunrise to noon. So God has regathered the people from the nations. He's recreating Jerusalem. And what does it begin with? As soon as they can. Get everybody together and he preaches to them from sunrise to noon. So next Sunday we're also having one service at 6.30 and it'll last till noon. <laughs> at 6.30 to noon. No, I'm kidding. There will be two services. Ignore what I just said. <laughs> When God formed Israel, it was through the giving of the word, the law. When God reformed or recreated them, it was through the instruction of the word. Throughout Acts, it is the word of God that is pictured as the conqueror that is conquering. The word of God spread and the number of disciples increased. Acts chapter 6. It's the word that makes disciples. The new creation is being formed or reformed, if you will, through the word. God's word proclaimed. And God said, and it was so. So, the power for transformation is resident in His proclaimed word acted upon by the Spirit when we cling to it. You see, we all have a very important part to play, even during this preaching segment. I mean, I, one part that I would appreciate is some amens, and that is, you know, that, those are always good, but that's not the part I'm talking about. There's a more important part to play. We are called to hear and respond, respond with all our heart, soul, and might. All our heart, soul, mind, and strength, as it's put in the New Testament. An Orthodox Jew would recite every day, the, the first thing every day in their prayer, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your uh, uh, might. And, and, and that's from Deuteronomy 6, 4, and 5. It's called the Shema which is the first word, which is hear. And so they understand that the first word of God to them is hear. Not do, not say, hear. And the most important thing that happens on Sunday is hearing as a form of worship to God so that we might love Him with all our heart, soul, and might. We, the Israel of God, are called to hear God before anything else. And it's only in hearing Him that we can love Him with all our heart, our soul, and our strength. Now, what is it about the proclaimed Word that gives it renewing power? Well, in this very letter of 2 Timothy, I think Paul tells us, in one one he tells us he's an apostle according to the promise of life, and in one ten he tells us, How the gospel, through the gospel, Jesus destroyed death and brought life and immortality to light. You see, it's a life-giving word. The word itself has life to recreate us into the image of Christ. Whenever the word of God is neglected in favor of relevance or preferences, life wanes. Life wanes. So pastors must persist in proclaiming and teaching. And congregations, including the pastor, must persist in hearing And putting it into practice. Lest we walk away and miss a key application of this letter. Let's pause and consider what Paul was calling Timothy to do. And what it might mean for us. Timothy had to be willing to suffer. That which at the time would have heaped shame upon him. For the sake of safely transporting and delivering the message. Both in content and through his life some of the things in 21st century America, America that, that we Americans consider shameful that, that we have to associate ourselves with even though it will heap shame upon us in order to obey the gospel and to live it and to deliver it faithfully to others what are some of those things well to associate ourselves with the poor in America success is everything and you want to look successful and be successful you want to keep up with the successful people. And if we begin to put into practice Christ's radical teaching regarding giving to the poor and the needy, society would call us fools. As we hear on the radio regularly in this city, at least, life is about the dash. That's the line on the tombstone between the day of your birth and the day of your death. The gospel says, no, it's not. It isn't a Christian worldview. The world would consider giving, consider it foolish to give yourself to a community of people as if they are family, as, say, we do, the church. To give yourself to the poor, the lame, the less, less intelligent or capable, the world would say that's foolish, not the gospel. The world considers turning the other cheek, lending and not expecting a return, foolish. Forgiving our enemies and praying for them, foolish. The gospel calls us to these. God has not given us a spirit that is uh, that is to be cowardly protecting its own honor and fearing shame but one of power the ability to bear it one of love for the other people and a soundness of thinking in this upside down world let's pray heavenly father <clears throat> We desire to build a faithful gospel witness for this generation and the next. And at the center of that is the necessity for us to protect and deliver, guard and deliver the message. To live the message is a part and parcel of that. And to persist in proclaiming the message is a part and parcel of that. Lord, help us to be faithful in that by the Holy Spirit which you have given to us. In Jesus' name, amen.